How often have you heard people say that feminists are anti-national? Countless number of times? But did you know that this thinking actually has deep historical roots? Hi, this is In Perspective, the Swaddles podcast series where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. And I'm Shishti. Through this series, we bring to you conversations that we have had with scholars and are continuing to have since April 2020. When we first began to reach out to and have such remote discussions with a range of academics on the research work that they have produced, particularly when it comes to gender and sexuality studies and histories. In this episode, we take you back to a conversation from July 2020, when we spoke to Dr. Mary John, a pioneering feminist scholar, about the relationship between feminism and the nation, the skewed sex ratio in India, and changing attitudes towards sexual violence. We thought that we could start off with the question of the history of the feminist movement in India and how it's evolved from the 19th century onwards to its present-day manifestations. So if you could tell us about that briefly. And also one of the ideas that you talk about is the fraught relationship of the feminist movement with the idea of the Indian nation and nationhood. So if you could also shed a little bit of light on that, uh, that would be great. Um, well, thank you, Shristi, and thank you, Swaddle, for having me here. I, I'm very uh, excited to, to contribute to your discussions. Um, you've asked a very big question, actually. Uh, so let me try in you know as, as easy a way as possible to sort of set the context. Um, you say feminist movement, but strictly speaking, the term feminism actually enters our vocabulary probably I don't know, around the second or third uh, decade of the 20th century. So we go back to the 19th century, which we call broadly the social reform period. And I think most of you are familiar with Raja Ram Mohan Roy and all these figures, men mainly, um, till the end of the 19th century, it was only men who took on what were thought of as social evils. That's why it's called social reform. Sati, widow, you know, widowhood, uh, child marriage, female infanticide, um, and all of these uh, very importantly happening or being named in the colonial context. So we were under British rule, we were imperial subjects, and it is in this time that, uh, in fact, it was the British who often pointed out how backward we were. Uh, sometimes, of course, is uh, very hypocritical because they didn't have any good laws for women in their time. But nonetheless, it was part of their quote-unquote civilizing mission to think that we were a backward people and therefore, and especially where women were concerned, that we had the worst practices, uh, especially the Hindu, Hindu practices were the worst for women. Um, and therefore, to civilize us, they needed to make changes happen. And many uh, social reformers took up the challenge and, and introduced changes and so on. So the context of the 19th century is various moments uh, in this fraught, complex history of groups of people taking up either the British coming out with their own suggestions or uh, Indians on their side coming out with their own concerns over getting girls to school, over uh, making sati uh, a question of whether or not it should be outlawed and banned, which took 30 years to decide on that question. Um, uh, uh, female infanticide, which we may talk about a little later, uh, a number of these things. So by the end of the 19th century, we, we, there's a history then of petitioning. You have to imagine what that meant. It meant petitioning the British state, because we were imperial uh, you know, subjects. We had to uh, petition the state to demand changes in laws and other kinds of things to make, in fact, the situation better. And by the end of the 19th century, we also have the beginnings of a national movement. That is to say, a movement that, that is beginning to gather force about the fact that having British ruling over us was wrong, that we needed to become an independent nation and uh, stand on our own feet and get the, get, get the British out of the country. Now, imagine a situation where, on the one hand, you have a national movement saying, telling the British to leave. Uh, and on the other hand, you have people petitioning the very same British state saying, we want to raise the age of marriage of our girls, uh, we want to make female infanticide a crime, and so on and so on. So it's in that and in that moment before nationalism, before Gandhi, we're talking the end of the 19th century, the most interesting moment there is that the, uh, these, these, these uh, nationalists, um, A, they told the reformers, this is not the time to be going in for reform. 
A. But more interestingly, what they also said was, we need to have symbols. We need cultural symbols of the new nation. Since we are politically a subject people, we are not a nation yet. We don't even know what that's going to look like. We need to find cultural symbols of the nation that is uncolonized. And where did they go for one of their most I think, you know, active, most potent cultural symbols, no surprises here, it was women. So they thought of the woman, the Hindu woman in the home who was not to be seen outside, who hadn't sort of fallen afoul of like the men had, men in the outer world had been enslaved or subjected by British rule. The women were pure. They, were, they would be the right kind of symbols of the new nation. So we invented cultural symbols of the new nation at a time when we were still being subjected and women became symbols of the new nation. One of the most interesting uh, you know, aspects of that, which we see to this very day, is that even clothing styles came to represent this unique way in which women, not men, if you notice, men could wear various kinds of clothes, men wore, men could wear Western clothes, so to say British clothes, and not by that fact be thought of as betraying the nation, but women, to this very day, are thought of as having to wear Indian dress. I mean, of course, we are a new, you're a 21st century generation today. Those, those kinds of codes have changed considerably, but for to, to a considerable degree, it's still the case that the that the proper dress for an Indian woman is the sari or the salwar or something, and that coming a teacher should not be coming to college in dress in wearing a dress or wearing jeans. Why not? This, you don't find this in, in, in China. You don't find this in Japan. Um, uh, so the way in which then Indian women became the cultural symbols of the nation put them in a fraught relationship then with ideas of petitioning and you know demanding change on behalf of such women. So feminism as an inheritor of social reform, when the women's movement then comes into being in the early 20th century, it gets into a fraught relationship with this idea of woman as bearer of Indian culture. Because this woman as bearer of Indian culture was a very patriarchal construct. Uh, nationalists, for instance, were... We're, we're praising child marriage, saying it's a wonderful Indian custom. Uh, you British people don't understand the beauties of our culture. We have little girls and boys marrying, and there's nothing wrong with that. And these were the, the many ways in which they constructed this symbol were highly patriarchal. So, so if the symbol, the symbol of the Indian nation, the woman symbol, is a patriarchal one, you can imagine the kind of fraught relationship, the kind of tense relationship that would result when nationalists, when when women want to petition this, continue to petition the British state, saying we want to raise the age of marriage. We don't think it's a wonderful Indian custom. We think it's actually a problem. We want. We don't think that nine-year-old and 10-year-old girls should be getting married, and so on, which is what these um, early national, early uh, social reformers, these women, um, uh, did. Um, uh, so, so many of them were put into this. This is why, you know, so often... When it comes and when feminism becomes the name of, or more often than not, the name of the women's movement, feminists are frequently accused of betraying the nation, of not being Indian enough. So, you know, it's very curious because we don't, when we, when we have all the technological stuff that we use, we're not accused necessarily of betraying the Indian nation. Um, when we want to develop our country and become a first world nation, we're not accused necessarily of being. Um, you know, anti-national, but there's a way in which women, and I, I, I think that that this force of, the, of that of that accusation has probably shifted somewhat from, say, I would say the last decades of the of the 20th century to the 21st century. You don't hear it as much today. You you do hear people saying more often than not, "Well, we all want to be feminist now," and so on. But feminism was actually a very very fraught word. Many, many, even many members of the women's movement said they would rather not call themselves feminist. Yes, because they thought it was somehow associated with being Western. And to be a good Indian woman was to be non-Western. So you see, this is this is my answer to your to your question in terms of what made for this very interesting, peculiar, and somewhat unique to India kind of uh, relationship between feminism, Indian culture, and the nation. That's actually really fascinating to think about that and how that plays out today as well. And I think I remember some of the contemporary debates around, say, Sati in Rajasthan, or there were particular cases yes. which threw up yes. this question in a very interesting manner, even in, you know, modern Indian history much later on, or much more recently, rather. Um, so, I mean, moving from that, sort of, I think 
especially post independence and a question which has been central to looking at gender parity or other gender disparity in, in India is the question of a skewed child sex ratio and uh, you've done a lot of work about this and especially looking at you know attitudes and state policy to this so it would be very interesting if you could tell us a little bit about this historical context of a skewed child sex ratio in India and what are some of the how have attitudes evolved over time in your opinion and what are some of the or if you think there's one major challenge that we still continue to face today if you could talk about that the imbalance in the in the sex ratio is a very fascinating issue it's also again one of those which has a history it's very interesting that i think if you take any major uh, issue that even seems like a very 20th century or late 20th century issue you will almost invariably find that it has a certain history to it and that history invariably takes us back to the 19 the very 19th century we just talked about um so the beginnings of the talk of uh, a skew in the sex ratio it was not so much a child sex ratio but an overall sex ratio came up again during british rule it came up when british officials started counting using the census you know that uh, we our indian census was invented by them it's the first census was in 1881 um and around that time they uh, they made uh, they, they would they, they counted and they noticed that there was a skew at that time a major skew in the numbers with there being less women and more men overall um so they wondered at first whether this is simply because they weren't counting the women you know women are secluded especially in north india with practices of seclusion is it possible that there was a great deal of undercounting uh, and i'm i'm saying this only and the, the fact that this was a surprising finding is that most of the time it's the other way around mostly there are more women than men in any population in the world uh women tend to outlive men uh men die disproportionately due to illness or wars so the world over there's a greater proportion of women we are the one of the few countries in the world apart from china where that's not the case where we are there are fewer women in our country than there are men um okay so in the 19th century they find this and this is followed up with discoveries of female infanticide in uh what was then called rajputana that is now rajasthan or punjab they actually came across uh families rajput families for instance a poor uh you could say a, a rajput family would would sort of seen better days and was now on maybe slightly bad times uh were in fact killing the baby girls that were being born into the family and the reasons the phrase that was used by the british and it was a very accurate phrase actually they said the reasons were pride and purse what do they mean by pride they meant that the fear that this girl would not be they would not be able to find a good match a proper match if they were you know that the, a good match would have to be a, a you know finding a husband at the right time for this for this for the daughter that was the only future for her and that if there were extra daughters or if they were not in a position to pay which is the purse part of the story dowry if they didn't have good enough dowries at their at their uh, you know and in their hands then the girl might go unmarried which would be a terrible sort of fate for her so rather to to kill her off as a baby so she'd be born but then they would she would be killed punjab was another reg- region where again more complicated not quite the rajputana story but a consequence of even of british revenue uh, practices amongst jats and so on made them discover or experience daughters as a burden so again if there were extra daughters being born and they had to be settled through land or other means um uh, they would rather than uh, into the practice of female infanticide so these figures were significant enough to then make a difference to sex ratios um after independence this skew in the sex ratio was discovered in the 1970s by demographers <clears throat> who noticed and that was the even more alarming thing they noticed a decline that is to say when they looked at the censuses every 10 years from 1881 to say 1971 there was a what we call a long term decline and this decline continued after independence imagine in 1961 the overall number the proportion of girl, women to men is less than it was in 1951 in 71 it's again less so how does one make sense this was considered extremely strange they said it was inexplicable it, they couldn't figure it out how could a time when you they could they could blame colonialism maybe for bad things happening to women but how come after nehruvian development and all the good things that were being done for the indian nation after after independence how come even at this point in time the proportionate number of women to men was actually declining 
I mean, what reasons could be put to this? So there was, it was really considered a conundrum. That was one of the words that was used. It was considered a, a puzzle, a mystery. Um, following from there, we have yet another moment, which is in the 90s, which is the moment we all know now, the 1980s and 90s, when it was not just the overall decline, but a decline in children. That is to say, the census has a figure for the zero to six age group. The before school age group, it was actually this figure was set aside because of schooling, not because they had any fears about anything else happening. They wanted to set aside the figures of preschoolers to the schoolers. And then they discovered that this figure from the 90, from 1981 to 1991, and especially 2001, had seen a precipitous drop much below that of the overall sex ratio. So the proportion of women was not so bad, was actually improving a bit, but the proportion of little girls compared to boys was going down. And then, of course, they discovered the so-called sex ratio at birth, where they saw the real problem, the biggest drops that were that. And we all know this was the time when amniocentesis and subsequently um, uh, uh, ultrasound testing entered our country and families were resorting to sex-selective abortions. If they, had, if they were being, when they were pregnant, you, you, you imagine a time in the 1980s and 90s in cities like Bombay or Amritsar or Delhi, um, where you could openly, there were no laws in place because nobody had a clue about this. You went and had an ultrasound done or you went and got yourself an amniocentesis done and you could openly ask the sex of the baby. And when people, you could, there was no law in place, it was not, it was not un understood as there being a problem here. And doctors would tell then what the sex of the baby was. And if this was an unwanted female uh, child, then they went ahead and got an abortion done. So abor sex-selective abortions is a new technologically aided, medically aided practice, which resulted in very huge declines. So this was a decline created by medical technology or made possible by medical technology. It began in our big cities. It began in cities like Bombay, where if you read about uh, you know, the, the accounts of the, of the activists who discovered this and took it up as an issue, uh, activists discovered how large numbers of middle-class women flocked to these ultrasound centers. And there would be these signs would be put up on, on local trains, for instance, saying, pay 500 now, save 50,000 later implying 500 was the cost of getting a test done and 50,000, of course, in those days, a very low number, is the cost of a dowry, right? So openly advertising the idea that you could get uh, a sex-selective abortion. Uh, as a consequence of a great deal of, um, of activism, first in the state of Maharashtra, in 1986, a ban was put in place, and this ban initially was against amniocentesis testing, because this was the initial technology that was being used to, to, to test the, the, the fetus, the, the sex of the fetus. <clears throat> Subsequently, in 1994, a national law was created, and then it included also issues around um, ultrasound, which, was, which made the issue much tougher, because you see, amniocentesis testing is a very special test. You do it when you're slightly older and so on, and you have issues where you might think that it's a genetic test. Whereas ultrasound is an is antenatal care, right? Everybody goes and gets an everybody's supposed to get at least two antenatal tests done. So from being an abnormal, a test of abnormality, which is what amniocentesis was about, it became part of normal antenatal care. So it spread like wildfire. You know, venal, you could call them venal um, um, medical practitioners took little mobile units of the of ultrasound machines from their clinics to surrounding rural areas saying, you can get this test done, you can find out if you have a baby girl, and you can decide to abort it if you don't want to have the baby girl, okay? So there was a lot, so a great deal of, of, of effort went into this. Um, you've asked me what are the challenges. We are in a situation today where the... Um, this child sex ratio and the sex ratio at birth continues to decline. The latest 2011 data will tell us that it's the worst areas are urban, the worst areas are states like Punjab, Haryana, and so on in Northwest India, the more prosperous. So what one of the biggest challenges is to understand what's going on here. Because we're very used to thinking, oh, problems of gender inequality are because of poverty. It's because people are poor, they don't have enough for their girls, and the girls are neglected and so on. And yes, there is girl neglect. Yes, that, that there's no doubt about that. But actually, this practice is much more effective and much more resorted to by non-poor, 
by urban people, by non-poor families in rural areas. Prosperous families go in for it. And we have tried to analyze it. We have done studies on the subject. And one of our, and that makes the, that, that I'm, I'm putting this out to you to get you to understand why this is so challenging. Um, we, we say that it's the unintended consequence of very good things. It's the unintended consequence of what we would think of as actually marrying your girl at higher ages, actually investing more in her years of education, actually taking better care for her. Because if you now can't marry off your girl at 11 or 12, if you wanted to have a good school and college education, and you want to have a very small family now, all of these are considered very good things. If you want to have a very small family and you want to make sure it's a girl and a boy, you want one boy, one girl, everybody wants one boy and one girl. What happens and you want to get them well-educated and you want the best for them, you want your daughter to do well in life. What happens when you already have a girl and your second pregnancy turns out to be another girl? What do you do then? And this is, this is where it kicks in. This is what we are seeing. We are seeing the second and the third are the places where sex selection kicks in because you want to have at least one boy. You don't want too many sons. Nobody wants lots of sons anymore. That time is long gone. Sons are big trouble. And you, the women will go on and on telling you how much trouble their sons are. But you want one for the flea line and whatever. You can't be certain about, you know, where your daughter is going to be. You need that one son. So you can't, be, you can't have a girl-only family. So therefore, you resort to sex selection. So it's an unintended consequence of the fact that you have to would otherwise have to be able to have a small family with only girls, put your faith in them, educate them in the hope that they would be able to be there for you, but which you cannot hope for. So it's an unintended consequence of otherwise what would we think of families planning their families, wanting small families, wanting good education for their daughters and sons. And a consequence of this is that an extra daughter is unwanted. That's the one big challenge. The second big challenge is the fact that even though the law was created to actually criminalize sex determination testing, that is to say the criminal act is when the radiologist or whoever medical person communicates to you the sex of the fetus. This has become a crime, right? And it's tough enough to sort of Actually, you have to imagine how would you go about catching someone in the act, right? Not so easy because it's behind closed doors and so on. So what happens then, you actually shift the, uh, <clears throat> the question from sex determination testing to the act of under, undergoing an abortion. So it's abortion clinics that have come under fire for conducting abortions. Now, the big problem with that is that how do you distinguish between a sex-selective abortion, that is to say, an unwanted girl being aborted, and abortion as such. Anyone may have an unwanted pregnancy. We don't know the sex of the fetus. We decide we don't want to have that baby. We go and want to have an abortion done, okay? So the consequence of trying to criminalize sex-selective abortions has had the unintended consequence of making abortion access itself more problematic. So abortion has become even more of a gray area than it anyway has been. None of us, uh, you know, have may managed to make abortion a right in the absolute sense or make it something that can be openly, you know, availed of. It remains a very gray zone, but it's become even grayer now because how does one know if you're if you're genuinely just wanting to have an abortion? It may be male, it may be female, right? There's no telling. And if it happens to be female, does that mean that you're going in for sex-selective abortion? So these have acted as uh, kind of obstacles in our battle. So one is the fact that the acceptability or otherwise of being a girl-only family for a small... And this is very much affecting middle-class, lower-middle-class, non-poor families. And the other is our attempts to actually curb the practice when we create the unintended effect of making abortions as such a criminal act which we don't want. None of us want that. As uh, someone who has only one elder sister, we've often heard comments like, oh, your parents are okay with that. That's nice. Or, you know, the, even if you're okay with it, that's like an anomaly in society. So that definitely resonated. The government of India is raising the minimum legal, considering the uh, 
raising the minimum legal age of women's marriage from 18 to 21 years and seemingly to a lot of people even in the way in which i remember that decision was recently reported in the news it was hailed as a progressive move it seemed to be something that was progressive and people wouldn't understand what is wrong with such a policy but you along with several activists and feminist scholars have actually highlighted the problems with such a policy change could you talk about some of the major issues here yeah we were very surprised um it was i think the finance minister in her budget speech who in the middle of a budget speech actually announced this uh, consideration that they were going to revisit the existing laws on child marriage um as i don't know if everybody knows we have a laws in place since 1978 that makes 18 the minimum age of marriage for girls and 21 the minimum age of marriage for boys and in 2006 we had a a protection of child marriages act which has made this law avoidable i mean in the sense that it's looking for protections and ways in which to uh deal with those who marry below the age of 18 um now i think one like just to start the conversation off there is a reason why 18 has been put in place as a global it's a kind of a global age it it does have a lot to do with health um considerations that you know the female body develops post puberty and that broadly speaking the body attains its fullest development around 18 as an average figure and therefore that if and, and you notice however that this of course does mean that the body is being considered very very narrowly in terms of its reproductive functions um but what we what 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 they did find was that when girls were marrying at 12 13 14 kinds of ages and the bodies were still undeveloped it did result in a lot and they then had pregnancies and had babies it resulted in a lot of medical complications um the the baby was either not born at all or was born very weak mother's health was at risk uh maternal mortality was higher so there were me- medical reasons why and then that was combined with ideas of the child and child rights there was a huge international child discourse developing and all of this put together then felt that a child ought not to be saddled with the responsibilities and the burdens of marriage um uh, and childhood was defined as from the from birth to age 18 so a number of factors went together to make 18 then a minimum sort of age and this is you find this in many parts of the world some other parts of the world have even younger mind you britain has 16 as the minimum age of marriage most parts of the world have equal ages for men and women so 18 and for boys and girls is in fact the minimum law across the world we have had 18 and 21 for whatever social conventional reasons this idea that boys should be slightly older whatever that goes with that um actually our our, our child marriage our under age marriage has been improving So I think the first thing to put on the table here is that where that from the time when you know when child marriage you could genuinely say pre-pubertal marriage was very much a practice in amongst Hindu families upper caste Hindu families in the 19th century um that practice shifted with a great deal of activism on the part of women's groups and others it's been creeping up ever since it's been steadily creeping up post independence has been creeping up and so we now have actually a mean age of marriage in our country is around 19 years um from it having been lower before and the proportion of of there's a, there are technical figures for de, you know determining how many in a certain age group the age group of 20 to 24 how many in this age group have married before the age of 18 that figure dropped by almost half it was above 50% in 2005 using the national health, family health survey and it has come down to 26% as of 2015 so that's a huge drop and it seems to be and the figures and you know anecdotal evidence on the ground seems to show that it's actually continuing to drop and more importantly i would no longer call it child marriage i would call it late adolescent marriage hardly anyone is marrying below the age of 15 today it's like 5 or 6% it's around 20% of the 15 to 17 age group so it's working so my question to the state is why do you want to meddle with something that's actually working more and more people are waiting to to decide when they want to get married so why do you want to mess with that um i fear that there are fertility and other kinds of concerns at the back i don't 
I really don't think it has a great deal to do with the idea of equality. Why should we measure equality in terms of 21 for girls and 21 for boys? Make it 18 for boys and girls if you're so hung up on the idea of equality, which is the universal uh, rule everywhere. Um, I think that there are other fears at work, unfortunately. They may have to do with population numbers. The idea that actually a younger, uh, when you marry at younger ages, you have more children. And there's a re-emergence of population explosion uh, in, this, in the state discourse today. Um, there is also the idea that you know mortality and so on is much is 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 worse at lower ages. But actually, I've looked at data, and the data doesn't support it. We were talking just a little while ago about the small family. The remarkable thing is that the small family is now a desired family, not just amongst the middle class, even poor families. Nobody wants extra children anymore. This, the era has gone when you when you said, oh, an extra child would be an extra, you know, labor. Uh, none of that is the case. An extra child is an investment, is a burden. You need to send that child to school. You need to find jobs and future kind of security for your children, poor and rich alike. So even states like, say, West Bengal, which have some of the lowest child marriage, you know, the biggest child marriage rates in the country, have very, very low rates of fertility. So they're marrying them young, but they're actually only having one or two children. So many of the claims that are being made by, by the government regarding the reasons why this should be stopped are actually not true. Furthermore, we wonder why would you want to criminalize someone marrying below before the age of 21? I mentioned 20% as you know the, the late adolescent marriage. Most women in India across the country are marrying about 80% of our women to, in our country today are marrying before the age of 21. That's the fact because you know marriage is a compulsory institution. Most people, after they, you know, by the time they finished high school or maybe a little bit of college, are getting married. So why would you want to criminalize the vast majority of Indian women? This is what an act. If you're using a law to try and make change happen, try and give you the the, the good idea behind this would be you want girls to have more of an education. You want them to have more choices in life. You want them to find maybe some kind of a job before they're married off. You want them to maybe even decide whether they want to marry in the first place. But the way to go about that is not to raise the age of marriage through legal punitive means. The way to do that is to make more schools and colleges available. Most villages still don't have a high school. There's no secondary education. The girls have to, their parents have to imagine sending their girls to some other nearby town or, or whatever to, to have her complete. So she's finished and boys and girls both are often at a loose end once they're done with high school at the ages of 15 or 16. The boys are whatever, hanging around, loafing and whatever. The girls are at home helping out with chores and parents start getting anxious. What to do with her, right? So, and it's not like the village is offering her a lot of opportunities. So create opportunities, meaningful opportunities, and any parent will tell you today that they'd rather have those opportunities. Parents, mothers want more opportunities for their daughters. Ask anyone if those opportunities are genuine. If in fact they would have a good chance of getting to a college or a diploma course, which would land them into some kind of a decent job, any day a parent would want that. They're not forcibly marrying off their girls at young ages. So I feel that we all feel that there's something wrong-headed about this particular law, which sounds gender equal, but actually is going about it the wrong way. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to note, I think not just like you mentioned, go into the nuances of the data and realize how mindsets are changing across the country about, you know, how many children to have and like uh, that, that kind of perception and mindset is changing. And also to realize that if you're looking at equality, like you said, why not make it 18 for both? Or why criminalize such a large proportion of the population of women, which is really the central question. And I think uh, so far, we've sort of spoken about different ways in which um you know, I, I think the idea of gender equality or gender parity, like different aspects of it. And one very important aspect of it, which we've seen become especially more, at least for, for a lot of us who grew up or like who sort of uh, became adults in, I mean, I, for instance, turned 18 in 2012 and went to De Delhi for college. And that the 2012 Delhi gang rape case was such a major part of public discourse for me of, you know, even discourse within our family to discuss whether I should go to Delhi for college or not. And I think that takes us to a major talking point today, which is the public perceptions of sexual violence in India. And how did the 2012 Delhi gang rape change those perceptions? 
Yeah, even though I'm a much older person than you, I have to say that the Delhi gang rape changed my life as well. And I'm saying this as someone for whom, you know, women's violence against women was like the early, you know, the breaking point, the way in which the women's movement re-emerges in the late 1970s with, uh, you know, a major, major uh, demonstrations against, uh, in this case, it was the Mathura case, as it came to be called, or, of a young woman who went to a police station and was actually gang, gang raped by policemen in the state of Maharashtra, and they, they were let off. The, the policemen were let off, and this created such a storm that it created a national campaign against rape. Um, so we, we, we've had decades of, you know, uh, campaigning against violence, wanting to improve our rape laws. We discovered to our shock that the rape laws on our books were had never been touched since the time they were created in 1861 by the British. Uh, so it was that archaic language also outraging the modesty of a woman. I don't know if you've ever looked at the language of the law. It's 19th century Victorian language. Um, so very narrow definitions of rape as penovaginal rape and so on, all of much of which did not actually fit uh, current experiences. So since the 80s, decades of eff efforts to change the law, uh, some of them successful, some of them not so successful. And lo and behold, here comes 2012. Here comes this uh, particular tragic case, this remarkable young woman, uh, Jyoti Singh, um, who, who became called the fearless one, Nirbhaya, by the media. Um, who then somehow captures the imagination, not just of India, but the world. I mean, it's a remarkable fact. What was it about? The, and we don't have a clear answer here, except that I think the media managed to create and pick up elements of her story uh, in a way that somehow hit home. Uh, I mean, we never quite know why does one case suddenly create such an impact when others, there were raves before that, that hadn't, didn't have this impact. Anyway, it had a tremendous impact. I think it was mostly a positive impact in the sense that it revitalized. I mean, we felt a little, how shall I say, not cheesed off is maybe not quite the right word because as we, you know, we had gone to so, we had created so many uh, campaigns uh, over the years as in, as members of women's organizations. And suddenly here was this one case which brought tens of thousands of people onto the streets. But we weren't really cheesed off. I think on the whole, women's organizations, feminists, were really happy to see an issue like this get so much public traction. And it was also an equation of learning. I, I want to say that I had not been working on violence prior to this time. My, you've, you've, you know, I've talked about, I, I worked on a number of other areas of interest. There were a lot of good people, lawyers and others working on violence. So this was not an area I had worked on. But I found, you know, when I was giving talks after 2012, whenever I gave a talk, whatever the subject was, the questions from the floor were all about violence. They wanted to know all about sexual violence. So I said, okay, this is a moment I can't not find out more about it. So I did things like I checked up on National Crimes Records Bureau, you know, the, 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 the crimes records of our country, which are created out of the FIRs that are lodged in police stations. They are all sort of collected and aggregated at state and, and national levels. So I said, okay, let me educate myself. Let me find out more about this crime of rape. Um, and I was shocked with what I discovered because like most people, I knew that, okay, there's stranger rape, there's acquaintance rape, and the more common form of rape is, in fact, acquaintance rape, not the model of the Jyoti Singh uh, rape a case, which is a, 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 a more unusual. But I myself wasn't aware of any figures here. So when I looked at the 2013 figures, I was shocked to discover that the actual proportion of stranger rape to other kinds of rapes known to the victim are 2% stranger rape, 98% known to the victim. Now, just think about, these are FIRs, mind you. These are actual first information reports lodged with the police. These are official records. Ask yourself how many actual rapes about which we have no idea must be taking place in, in, in on the ground and which of those are more likely to make their way to the police. It will be much tougher to take a case of someone known to you, your boss, your uncle, the neighbor, and so on, you, how are you going to take those to the police compared to a stranger? Much more likely that stranger rape gets reported, much less likely that people you trust and love or who have power over you are people you are in a position to actually go to the... So the actual proportions on the ground will be even more skewed against stranger rape. So in other words, the Jyoti Singh case is the rarest of the rare. It's the perfect case of rape where the girl is from a certain, you know, respectable background, studying to become, uh, you know, physiotherapist. The, the rapists are low-life, uh, poor people from the slums whom nobody cares for. This is a kind of rape that actually we all identify with.
This is the kind of rape we're all socialized. I'd, and I'd be curious to know your generation. Everyone is socialized into saying, don't go out at night. Don't talk to those lowlifes. Don't talk to strangers. That's where the danger lies. Nobody tells you, watch out for people who care for you. Watch out for men who have power over you. Watch out for those who say they love you. Nobody tells you that that's where the dangers are. But actually, if you look at the data, that's where the dangers are. So um, in, in Bombay, for instance, the, the Majlis, a very, very well-known uh, law, I'm sure you're aware of them, uh, they did a study post the gang rape, and they looked at cases in the, in the district courts in Bombay. And they discovered to their shock that the proportion of stranger rapes, it was around 8 to 9% in that city, was just a little bit more, 7.9% cases were cases of incest by fathers of daughters. That's the situation, all right? We're talking about the worst kind, the worst form of, you know, betrayal of love and trust and dependency. I can't think of a worse form than that of a father over a daughter. That is just 1% less than all the stranger rapes put together. In that's in your city. So think about this. So there was much to learn. I think I think there were many, many ways in which, and many, many, I would say again, even knew there was, there was a, a, a group that was formed in, in, in Kolkata called Hokolorom, which was a kind of student-led organization. There was the Y Loiter group in, in on Bombay streets. There was a Hyderabad for Feminism uh, online kind of group. They all had new energy and they took up issues in, in very, very good ways post the gang rape. I think those are really interesting questions that you raised. And one thing that did come up right at the start was, uh, you know, like you spoke about how has that discourse impacted how we look at safety. And very often our parents or at homes, we are told that, oh, be wary of, you know, quote unquote, the loafer at your street side or be wary of that lower class uh, man who you see on the street side, but not wary of people at home or not wary of how harassment plays out at the workplace. I mean, I, for one, was not equipped to deal with it. A lot of young women haven't been equipped to deal with social relationships and very skewed power dynamics at work. And uh, so I think that in that instance, the Me Too movement in India and the way in which it played out in 2017 with Losha and then in 2018 again with uh, the movement online, um, how do you think that has impacted the understanding of sexual violence and harassment within the feminist movement? Yeah, um, Me Too beginning in 2017 uh, and then in 2018 when it was openly called Me Too um, actually made me rethink what I uh, was discussing a little while ago about the limits of the um, ways in which violence has become the touchstone, as it were, of what actually is wrong with our society. Um, the reason I think I, I found myself rethinking it is that the location of each of these movements. So the Losha, the list uh, uh, had uh, shaming and harassing uh, men in academia, um, was about universities. It was bringing to our notice the space of universities and within that, the relationships between students and teachers. It foregrounded that. Uh, above all else, as a, as a space of intimidation, as a space of sexual harassment, and so on. There were huge controversies. I don't necessarily want to rehearse them here. The, um, the, the bringing out of this list, being anonymous, uh, offering no details whatsoever about the nature of the crimes, that, the nature of the harassment that had been committed, naturally created a sense of disturbance among and everyone. I don't think there was anyone who didn't feel disturbed about the fact about the fact that one was just getting a list of men um, uh, being being. But mind you, this was uh, to, to just to put this in perspective, this was happening across the world. Lists were coming out. There was a list of men in media in the USA. Lists were coming out in Korea. Many, many, this was a global moment, and this was one such. In this case, it was academia. In India, it was academia. It was disturbing because it was a space that many of us closely, I'm a teacher and a researcher. Uh, we know many of the names of the people. They are sometimes well-respected and so on. Naturally, this created disturbance. So, there's no, so there were those who felt that such a list should not exist. It should be taken down. Um, I think that there are issues with the list, and it would have been good to know more about the nature of the cases. But I also think that the idea, we have to understand why this came about in the first place. Why was it that there was a feeling that 
um, going to uh, committees, uh, you know, dealing with sexual harassment was not an option. Did these committees even exist? In our own, when I was part of a task force of the UGC, we discovered that barring one or two like JNU or, and so on, there were precious few existing uh, committees on sexual harassment. The few that existed were very confused. Many of them, in fact, were fiefdoms for the powers that be. Um, the last place that people wanted to go to would be these committees. Uh, unless you knew somebody there, your chances, especially if you're going to take up a case against faculty. Uh, cases, student, student cases were much more easy to settle. But a faculty person with power over you was much tougher proposition. Um, so many of them said, we'd rather not speak out. We'd rather, so we need to recognize what is the culture of our universities one of the surprising things was when I thought about workplaces in comparison to universities, at least your modern, the kind of Me Too workplaces that got you know foregrounded are very capitalist workplaces. They're not necessarily places where people have power over you for the rest of your life. But think about the university. Think about the power that a professor can have over a student. Even if that person was taken to task, that power, we have cases of, of, of faculty who have, for instance, been indicted, very few, we have hardly any, but the few that we have, that doesn't mean that that person's power is taken away. That person may yet be on a committee later on, may decide whether you get a postdoc, may decide whether you're, you know, you, and so on. So um, uh, the, the feudal, if I may call it that, the feudal nature of power in universities that claim to be very liberal is in fact an eye-opener. It was quite an eye-opener for me at least. It raised, of course, difficult questions, and I, for me, they were very productive ones. What about consensual relationships? You know, what about a consensual relationship between a faculty person and a student? We have not had these discussions. We should have these discussions. In many other parts of the world, if it's your own student, if you're teaching that student or you're supervising that student, you should not have a sexual relationship with that student. This is a law in many universities in the US, for instance. I think it's a good law. Uh, and the reason it's a good law is because it actually creates a sense of disturbance, not just for that particular student, it's actually for everyone. The teacher involved is teaching everyone in the classroom. If that teacher has a special relationship to one student, it creates a feeling of deep disturbance for everyone present. By all means, have relationships, but not when you're actually in a situation where you're deciding the future of that. Wait until you're no longer in that relationship with that student. Or if you're a supervisor, change the supervisor. Find someone else to supervise a student. Please carry on. You know, I think we need, we haven't had those discussions in our context. I think the beginnings of such discussions are happening. And that's why I think the LOSHA was overall a plus. It's also been the case that I think many sexual harassment committees have had to rethink how they're functioning, how to make themselves better, make themselves less partial, uh, I know Mumbai University has put in an ordinance and wants to begin the process of having um, a, a good uh, functioning uh, uh, gender uh, uh, and women's uh, harassment, uh, which they didn't even have all this while. So there have been on the whole good things. Um, the interest, so that's the, that's the story when it comes to Losha. When it comes to what happened a year later when journalists, comedians, um, people in actresses in, in, and transgender persons in, in film industries all spoke out, which is an interestingly different moment. Um, many of us, many of them actually use Twitter rather than Facebook. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, but I believe that they came out with testimonies. So for one thing, you did have testimonies. What you did not get from Losha, you did get here. Testimonies that told you what had happened to them at whatever point in time, sometimes recalled many, many years later, sometimes not so. You know, in, in one or two cases, it was in much later in life. Um, that, and so that also tells you how come at a younger age, you have no language, you have you you don't have the you know the the the, the means uh, the confidence of speaking out. Whereas at a much later stage in life, when perhaps you're in a position of some security, you're willing to call out. This was true in the U.S. as well. The Me Too movement with Harvey uh, Weinstein and so on. Imagine these are famous, world famous actresses who spoke out when in late middle age. So I think we have to ask ourselves: What is it about this relationship? This relationship of trust power, and so on, that is so hard to name. Compared to the stranger, that is the easiest thing to name, right? So I think there was a culture has been created wherein which many, many such discussions could happen. There are many 
areas that still need to be probed further. There's been discussion of the fact that the Me Too movement, both in the US and in India, has been largely by middle-class privileged women, women in a strong position from which they could speak out. Some of them have acknowledged this. Some of them have said, yes, if I didn't have middle-class privilege, if I didn't have supporting families, there's no way I would have spoken out. So then we need to ask ourselves, what about the others? What about women from marginalized communities? What about Dalit women? What about those whose voices we have yet to hear, where the chances of abuse and so on are much, much higher? So we badly need to broaden the, the base of such a movement. Um, in the Telugu film industry, there were some good examples of women who were sort of at the bottom of the pyramid, so to say, uh, you know, item girls, uh, transgender persons who actually spoke out. And they and interestingly, they didn't just say that they were actually harassed or the casting couch was not just part of the problem. They said that the wages they received was part of the problem. The conditions of their work was part of the problem. And in my view, the most, the most uh, welcome way in which the Me Too movement could grow would be precisely by broadening the questions, not just to those of harassment and violence, but to the nature of the workplace. Aren't there real problems you're having in your workplaces as such? Aren't there discriminatory ways in which you're being dealt with as a woman? not necessarily an unwelcome sexual advance, but many other ways in which you feel put down and you know it's because you're a woman and that the men in the group and in, in your colleagues are not going to be treated the same way. And you can't call it unwelcome sexual advance and you're stuck. For those reasons, you, there is no committee you can go to to actually air your grievance, but it has everything to do with the culture of the workplace that you're in. So I hope that actually this moment of finding a language through sexual violence will broaden itself to the many ways in which the spaces are discriminatory and exclusionary. I'm, I'm worried about the large numbers of very well-educated young women who are actually leaving their jobs because they find that the space that they're in is actually not conducive and they'd rather be at home looking after their kids or whatever rather than work. To me, that's actually a terrible shame. And that's where we need to make pressure for change. Absolutely. I think that's so important for us to think about. And, um, and and hopefully, I think we could take some of those reflections forward in the way in which the movement evolves. Like you said, the who, who was able to speak out, who has the privilege of speaking out, and what are the ways in which we understand how systems operate uh, that beyond just sexual harassment and beyond, you know, power dynamics and, and the discomfort that they bring in different ways. And I found it particularly interesting the way you spoke about the university and actually how it operates compared to a lot of more capitalistic workplaces where Me Too played out. And I think that's something very interesting to reflect on as well. And uh, speaking of the university, I think something that you also spoke about before and which might be a nice note for us to end on or reflect on is the gender gap in higher education. As And as you mentioned, that the enrollment ratios, um, I mean, for, for women now are even greater than for men. So I think it'd be really interesting to know where we're at when it comes to the gender gap in higher education and what are the sort of challenges we face now with regard to, you know, the connection between higher education enrollment and, say, workforce participation. I think both things that you've sort of spoken about in passing throughout the interview, but if you could just speak about that. The Indian story is mostly a very dismal one. We are mostly pointing out over and over again how terrible we are. We have the worst indices, you know, and so on and so forth, and it goes on and on and on. One of the places where positive change has been happening is education. So 19th century, it was a big deal whether you sent your girl to school. Okay, and there were all kinds of slogans that if your girl went to school, she would become a widow. These were the kinds of slogans that the 19th century had to contend with, right? Um, and why did you need to become, you know, it was very curious, you know, they would say things like, why does your girl need to learn how to read and write? She will start having affairs with strange men. You know, it's very interesting how even sexuality comes up here. Like, your husband will take care of all the reading and writing. Why do you need to? Think of the sea change from that time to the present where you would be a fool not to send your girl to school. It's the it's only when the schools are too far and you know there's there's no toilet and what have you, you know, when the schools are failing um, our, our families and our children, that's the time then girls are not going to school. Girls and boys are all going to school, and if they're dropping out, it's the school that's face that's failing. Nobody else. It's not the it's the families are not the source of the problem. It's, we must be very clear. We do have dropout rates. They're pretty bad, but the dropout rates are pretty bad for both boys and girls. They're not uniquely bad for girls. Um, so over the years, you know, if, if I will look at higher education, at the time of independence around 1950, there were about one lakh students in our higher education institutions overall. Out of those one lakh, 
10,000 10, were women. That's the figure of 1950. By the time we go to the year 2000, the numbers have expanded manifold and the proportion of women has become 40%. Big jump. Today, we have about 36 or 37 million young people in higher education of some form or the other, be it a diploma course. Most of them, 80% 80, 80 of them are doing a BA or a B, BSc, BCom degree. Um, then there's MAs and, and, and PhDs. So we have one lakh PhDs today compared to that one lakh I mentioned earlier. So such an, such an expansion is extraordinary. It's happened at a time when in fact, private education has grown. Again, that tells you how much families are willing to invest in the education of their daughters and their sons because it's become more expensive compared to the days when there was only, you know, public universities, only state universities. Today, the larger proportion of colleges are private and some of them do charge, you know, fees. Um, and yet we see, uh, so my, my the, the remarkable thing is that we're seeing actually a closing of the gender gap. There is close to parity in overall, when we look at the average, close to parity when it comes to overall enrollment of girls and boys in higher education. There are variations, no doubt. So your B.Ed. Um, college, your Bachelor of Education, you know, these are teaching shops, they're mushrooming all over the country. There are probably 90% girls in those. You have an uh, IIT, uh, it's probably 20, 25% girls in those. So imagine the range in between, yeah? Uh, but if you go to an undergraduate, you go to go to Bombay University, come, I live in Delhi University, look around you, Delhi University actually has more women than men on their roles. And they're not all distance education students, okay? Even your women's colleges like your Miranda House or your Lady Sri Ram are highly sought after. They're not considered old-fashioned sort of, you know, things from the, from the social reform period. So... Um, there is a tremendous, a tremendous proportion of young people now going into education and even professional areas uh, are being breached. So even, even in engineering, you will now see many more women entering computer engineering, not civil engineering, but computer engineering. You'll see many more women entering the so instance, medical education. Of course, they get channeled into gynecology and obstetrics rather than say surgery. So yes, there are all these variations but there is this tremendous upsurge when it comes to education. And then my, my sad part of the story, this is the great part of the story. The sad part of the story is what next? How many MBAs, how many MBBSs after they finish are actually working? How many of them are actually translating their degrees into a credential for marriage? That's, my, that's, that's the great disappointment that I carry with me. Um, it's this mismatch. The other fear that I'm beginning to carry with me now, now that we are in the pandemic, and maybe that's the note to, to, to conclude on, in the pandemic, we are closed. Schools are closed, colleges are closed. And there's a great deal of talk of what we can do under these conditions. And no doubt under pandemic conditions, we will have to imagine good versions of online education because there is no offline. Offline is just too dangerous. It's too scary. We cannot have large numbers of students in our you know, enclosed classrooms. Unless we can figure out social distancing in our classrooms, it's, it's too much of a danger. So we will have to conceive of intelligent ways of doing it, which unfortunately may lead to a greater digital divide. We'll have to figure out ways to deal with all those things. My great fear is that our government may feel that this is a good moment to go online forever because online will actually reduce costs tremendously. So why would we think that this is a terrible idea? And especially a terrible idea for girls, for everyone, for all castes and classes, girls especially, is because education is not just what you get from the teacher. It's not just the readings that you do. It's not just the assignments that you do. It's actually getting out of the house and being part of a larger physical culture, hanging out, spending time outside classroom, interacting with your peers, as much or more learning happens there. And if that is taken away, if in the, if in the decades to come, we're all going to reduce education to something that is being beamed at you, supposing tomorrow we solve the electronic problem, supposing everybody gets a laptop, supposing electricity is 100% in every village, I would still say it's a terrible idea. 
It can complement, it can supplement, but it cannot take the place of actually the spaces that schoolgirls and boys will be occupying, students at whatever levels of education would be occupying outside in their interactions with each other, because as much or more learning happens there. All the various things that you go through, the ways in which you grow up, the ideas that you get are not just about what you get from the teacher in a one in, in, in that kind of narrow relationship. It's really this larger world. So let's really hope that the pandemic is solved. Let's really hope that we will get back those spaces and that all these questions can be debated there physically in every way. And that's the note that we ended our conversation with Dr. Mary John on. It's really interesting that back in 2020, Dr. John was actually speaking to us about the problems with online education and the need to think about the ways in which we need to shift and redesign how we learn and communicate post the pandemic. Today, as schools and colleges have reopened and things have by and large returned to quote-unquote normal, it's interesting to go back and reflect on some of those thoughts. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as we enjoyed re-listening to it and bringing it to you. We will be releasing a new episode in this series every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.